Greetings in Jesus' precious name. It's good to be with you again. Bring you greetings from Milmont, the congregation there. This morning, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Just read some verses there. That's not the text. And then we will move on to the text. The title I have given the message this morning is, Are You Rich? Now, I know that's maybe a little strange, and you might be thinking, so where are you going this morning? I will tell you this. I'm not going to preach this morning on a... Um, health and prosperity gospel, that's not what I'm preaching, it's probably opposite of that this morning. But I want you to think of that question, and I'm not, I wasn't sure if I wanted to put it in a um, question form, but I decided that's what I would, uh, that's where I would go with it. So just keep that in mind as we go through this message. In Revelation chapter 1, I think we'll just start reading in verse 8, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is, the, is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of God, Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a girt golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in, the, in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou seest, which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The reason I read that is because our text is in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. But I just wanted you to get the picture of who is talking here and who we are going to be hearing from this morning as we look at this text. This is talking of Jesus. John was on the Isle of Patmos. He's writing what he saw there. And Revelation, the whole book, is what John saw. 
on that Isle of Patmos. But he's writing it to seven churches. And they're listed there in verse 11. And the other thing that we get from this is that Jesus is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he has all authority. And he is writing these letters to the seven churches. We're going, we look at them in Revelation 2 and 3, and then beyond that he continues to write what he saw, what is going to come. He says here that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the one that lives. He was dead. He is now living and he liveth in verse 18. He is alive forevermore. And he has the keys of hell and of death. Now let's read verse 8 to verse 11 of chapter 2. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now I just want to give you some background on where Smyrna was, what Smyrna was. This was actually a city in Asia Minor. It was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was a port city. And it was also one of the more, one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. It was wealthy. It was known for its schools of science and medicine. So there was a lot of things going on in Smyrna. The climate also in Smyrna is, as I was studying, it said it was, it's perfect in the spring and in the fall. The winters are very cold, or are cold, and the summers are hot. But the outlying areas of Smyrna are very fertile, so there is a lot of crops that can be grown there in Smyrna. And it seems like it was a place for the Roman Empire, as, as I already said, it was a beautiful city, but... There was a lot of things going on there, and Smyrna was, I think someplace I read that there was a lot of crowns given there. There was a lot of, in their games or whatever that was played in the Roman Empire, things were handed. There was a lot of winning that was going on. You know, things went well for Smyrna, it seemed like, in, in the Roman Empire. The other interesting thing on Smyrna is that the name means myrrh. Okay, and if you're familiar with that, that has that came through the Bible. As we read the Bible, we read of the spice or that of myrrh. It was actually brought to Jesus by the wise men. One of the wise men brought myrrh. It was used in the tabernacle, and it was also used to embalm bodies. Now that's interesting that it means that, and what Jesus had to say about Smyrna. 
They were a church who faced persecution, who faced trials and tribulations, but all the while they were a faithful church and it was that sweet aroma that was going up to Christ. As he saw what they were going through, it's, an ama- it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Smyrna is one of the seven churches. There's only two of the seven churches who had nothing, um, could we say negative, or where there was nothing that Jesus said, you must repent of this thing. Smyrna was one of those, Philadelphia is the other one. So there's nothing really negative said here about Smyrna, as there is to five of the others. In verse 8, We have Jesus, or it comes and Jesus says, unto the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now this angel is not some heavenly being. When he says angel here, as he's addressing the churches, this is probably someone who was a prominent leader. He was the leader of the church, of these churches. So this was someone who was possibly you know, the bishop or somebody who had some authority over the church at Smyrna. Very likely, this could have been Polycarp, and we're going to look at him a little bit more later, his testimony, but he was the the bishop of Smyrna. I don't know, was he now? Polycarp was one of the disciples of John, so it could be that this angel was Polycarp. In any case, It was someone with authority over the church. And he could speak into the church's life. Then Jesus goes on. He makes the statement there, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And that's interesting, which was dead and is alive. This was maybe a comfort to the church at Smyrna, to the believers there, as they were facing a lot of, Persecution. Then in verse 9, he says, I know thy works. Does Jesus know your works? Jesus is saying also here, I know that you are striving to become closer to me and you want more of me. I know your works. The next word here is the word tribulation. Jesus is saying, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. Now this word tribulation is an interesting word. It comes from the word (coughs) tribulium, which means a threshing instrument. And I want you to picture with me what this is like. So this tribulation, we could get the idea that, you know, it's not a pleasant thing. And it isn't a pleasant thing. Tribulation is not a pleasant thing to go through. But Jesus is acknowledging that I know what you're going through. But you notice that he's not saying I'm taking it away or I'm going to make that you don't have tribulation anymore. I acknowledge that you have it. I know you have it. Why? 
Because if tribulation is coming from that idea of a threshing instrument, you know, picture with me, we have a wheat, a kernel of wheat that is in the field. It was planted in the field there, and it grows up. Actually, before we go there, we'll just, we'll turn to Isaiah 28. And we'll read this, and then we'll continue on with this illustration. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 23 to 29. <clears throat> now Jesus, or the prophet Isaiah, God is talking, and the first part of Isaiah 28 here, he is once again talking to the children of Israel or Judah. I think it's Judah here or Jerusalem. And he's saying, and they were saying, you know, hey, we're going to, we basically have it all together. And then in verse 23, this is what is written here. It says, Give ye ear and hear my voice. Hearken and hear my speech. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the finches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. For the fitches are not, thresh, are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin. But the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel, and excellent in working. Now picture with me again as we were saying we have this kernel of wheat and here we have the plowman he goes through and he gets the ground already breaks all the clods those big clods of dirt up and makes it plain as we see in verse 25 then he plants his seed and it grows up. You know you have a wheat seed you don't just throw it in the oven, do you? And out comes bread. That's not how it works, is it? That kernel of wheat must go through some tribulation before we can have the bread that we eat. It has to go through tribulation before it can be useful to us. That's the picture that I would like for you to take with as we think of the church there at Smyrna, as we think of our own lives. You know, as you're going through life and you have tribulation that comes about, you know, the kernel of the, that wheat kernel, <coughs> excuse me, as it's hanging on the plant, if it were to know what is coming, which it might, and if you just picture with me this kernel of wheat saying, Yes, I know what's going to happen. I'm hanging here, but I know that at the end of this, when they take me off this plant, they're going to put me through the threshing instrument. And I'm going to have to be go through some hard things. But in the end, I'm going to be part of this beautiful loaf of bread or whatever it might be. But it has to go through that. That is what... 
tribulation is. That's what was happening to the church at Smyrna. They were going through tribulation, but what was it doing? All the while it was making them more like that ointment or that spice of myrrh. And it was just a sweet savor coming up to Jesus. As they allowed the tribulation to work in them. What does Romans 5, 3 to 5 say? And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Tribulations, it works patience, and it patience experience, and experience hope. And what does hope do with? It doesn't make us ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We could also, and this might not be totally what tribulation is, but Hebrews 12 talks of chastening. And we know that when we're going through the tribulation, it's not pleasant. We don't like it. But God is allowing, may I say, that tribulation in our lives to what? Draw us closer to Him and make us more like Him. Jesus went through tribulation when He was here on earth. He endured a lot of suffering. Let's allow the tribulations that come to work in us. I have something here from Joseph Parker. <clears throat> and just hear this out. I kind of cut into where he was writing, it is even so, it must be hard to bear. It is hardest, methinks, poor sufferer, when thou art silent. I would have thee talk. It soothes poor misery listening to her tale. It is when thou art silent that I fear the tribulum is most severe upon thee. Oh, that thou couldst cry whole hour, yea, shed tears all the day long. For then next day would be a day of joy. Bear it. Say, Lord, it is hard, but not too hard if thou wilt stand near me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Poor tribulated heart, God is now getting out of thee what is necessary for thine own sustenance. Let him alone. Do not interfere with him. Yield thyself and say, Thy will, my God, be done. So if you go, when we go through tribulation, let's not just think, oh, poor, pitiful me. Can't somebody just pity me? No, allow, or say, God, can't you take this away from me? Let's say, let's let him alone. Let's not interfere with God. But let's yield ourselves to him and say, thy will, God. Your will be done, not mine. We also know in Revelation later that it talks about the end time and the tribulation, and I'm not here to tell you, to explain all that to you, okay? But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the tribulations that we are facing as we go through life, on this journey through life. The next word here is poverty. Poverty. 
And I do think possibly that this word poverty here is talking about the, the church at Smyrna was materially and financially poor. They did not have a lot of wealth, even though this was a wealthy city. I do think that might be what this word poverty is talking about, but I would like to go a little bit further on that and say that we need to be poor in spirit in order to be rich in Christ. Because notice, the next phrase here in verse 9 is actually where I got my title from, but thou art rich. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 3, the first beatitude that we have on the Sermon on the Mount says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There we have that phrase again, the kingdom of heaven, as we had in our Sunday school lesson. But we must become poor in spirit. We must be spiritually poor or we will never have the kingdom of heaven. You know, if we go just the last church here in Revelation that John was talking to, the church at Laodicea said they were rich. They said, we've got it together. And you know what God said to them? You know what Jesus said to them? He said, but you don't realize that you are poor and you have nothing actually. The more we grow in Christ, the more we realize that we are, the more, could I say, the more we realize how poor we really are. The closer we come to Christ, the more we become like Him, the more we sense our poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. We are rich, but we must be poor. James 2.5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? And in Psalm 34.18, it says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. So let's be poor in spirit, because we are blessed. And when we realize how poor and how much, how, how spiritually poor we are, then... God can work in us, and he can use us. We must be poor in spirit and not be like the Laodiceans and say we are rich and we have it all. And Jesus is actually saying, no, you really don't. You are poor, and you don't realize it. Then we come to this phrase, but thou art rich. That is in parentheses. <clears throat> but thou art rich. This morning, if you have Christ in your heart and you are allowing the tribulations to work in you and you have a poor and you are poor in spirit, then you, brothers and sisters, are rich. Okay? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 just to show us a little bit how rich we really are, what we really have. And it's hard to know where to cut in here. We could read the whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, but we're going to jump into verse 11 here. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and with God and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he, he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." This is what the riches are this morning that we have in Christ. If we are saved, we have accepted Christ. If we are born again, as we had in our Sunday school lesson, ye must be born again. And when you are born again, then you are a rich people this morning. But this morning, if you're sitting here, and this is not the case, then I ask you this morning to make sure of your calling and of your election. Make sure of where you're at. Because you are a poor person then this morning in Christ's eyes if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. But as we read Ephesians chapter 2, we are rich. We have been saved. He has broken down the middle wall of partition. He has made us that we can come in and we can have that fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's an exciting thing. <clears throat> Back to our text. Then Jesus goes on and he says, And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. I would now like to look at this idea of persecution. Jesus is again acknowledging something here. To the church at Smyrna, he is saying, I know that you are suffering. He, and at verse 10, he actually says that you're going to, it's going to continue. Okay? <clears throat> he says, Don't fear those things which thou shalt, thou shalt suffer. But first of all, we need to look at the latter part of verse 9 where it says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews. This word blasphemy, I just looked it up. It is to slander a deity or something sacred. So, what we have here, and the church at Smyrna, there was Jews there, as well as Romans. But these were actually Jews, but they were blaspheming God. They were of the synagogue of Satan. This synagogue of Satan, I don't think, is an actual meeting place. I do realize that today there is perhaps those, I'm going to call them meeting places, that are for satanic worship. 
But this is the synagogue of Satan, I believe, is referring to those who are worshiping Satan. That's what these Jews were doing. These were Jews. These were religious people. They were looking like Jews. They were dressed like Jews. They were probably going to the synagogue of the Jews. They were going there every Saturday. They were perhaps keeping all the laws, at least the ones that were still in place here. By outward appearances, they were good, righteous, in their own eyes, Jews. But they were actually followers of Satan. That's exactly what Jesus says. Or that, that's what Jesus is saying. It's not those exact words, but he says, but you are of the synagogue of Satan. In fact, I realize that they are saying they are Jews, but they're blaspheming my name. Because they're saying we are the people of God, but in actuality, they are the people of Satan. And the same is true today and has been for hundreds of years the Christians are the ones doing the persecuting. It happens again and again. The religious people are often the ones who are persecuting. It's what happened to our forefathers. When they went against the state church, it was that church that persecuted them. You know, the challenge to me out of this is, <clears throat> am I just a religious person? And am I actually persecuting the church of Jesus Christ? You know, persecution this morning, I, I don't think that's happening here. I hope it isn't. But let's be careful. That we're not just religious and we look good and right and we are going to church every Sunday morning and all of that stuff. But we're persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Persecution is not just necessarily those that are being beaten physically and killed physically. That's not, most of the time when we think of persecution, that's what we're thinking of. That's not really the thing. Persecution has the idea of harassing, of mocking what is from God. I looked into the martyr's mirror last night and I would just like to bring, this is what Jesus is, Jesus said that in verse 9. Then he goes on in verse 10 and he says, don't fear those things that you're going to suffer. And they suffered things here at Smyrna. And Polycarp was, as I already said, was a disciple of John. 
and he was then the bishop of Smyrna. And in the Martyr's Mirror, it says this, as soon as Polycarp, and this is when they came to get Polycarp and to bring him to his execution or to his, he was actually burnt. And even that didn't work very well. They actually had to pierce him. And then the blood that came from his body actually seemed to extinguish the fire. But this is what, what I read. As soon as Polycarp had entered the circus or amphitheater, when they brought him in, where he was to be executed, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Be strong, O Polycarp, and valiant in thy confession and in the suffering which awaits thee. And I had to think of that. Jesus here says in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And here comes Polycarp. I don't know how long after. Polycarp very well may have read this letter that John sent to him. And as he walks into that amphitheater, and if it's the one that I was reading about in the history, it was it seated around 22,000 people. So I don't know, this place was probably full. We're going to get rid of this, at least try to extinguish some of this Christianity. And as he walks in, Polycarp heard a voice from heaven, and that's what it said. Be strong, O Polycarp, and valiant in thy confession and in the suffering which awaits thee. And then it goes on and it says, No person saw the one from whom this voice proceeded. But many of the Christians that stood around it around heard it. However, on account of the great commotion, the greater part of the people could not hear it. It nevertheless tended to strengthen Polycarp and those who had heard it. It seems like only Polycarp heard it and some of the Christians that were standing there. Most of the other people didn't hear it. Then as they go on, they looked, actually when they came to get Polycarp, the men that came to get him at the house, they look at this man and they, wait a minute, this can't be the one. He was 86 years old. This is an old man. Why are we, what are we getting this fellow for? And they tried to get him to recant then already, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, they tried to get him to actually renounce Christ then because they were like, we don't want to hurt you. You're an old man. Why don't you just, you know, appeal to Caesar, basically just... Say, I pledge allegiance to Caesar. Polycarp responded. This was now after he was brought into the, into the theater there, and he was in there. Once again, the proconsul said again, Polycarp, why? And he says, this was Polycarp's response. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? That was the response of Polycarp. But do you realize that Polycarp could only say that because he allowed the tribulation and the poverty that he had gone through to actually bring him to something where he could say that to the men who wanted to kill him. He said, you're going to get me to deny my Jesus now, the one that I love? <clears throat> Verse 
The martyr, William Tyndale, the one where we get our Bible from, the English Bible from, he said this regarding his persecution, I never expected anything else. In other words, what he is saying is, I am the follower of Jesus Christ. I didn't expect anything else but to be persecuted. Do we face it today, persecution? Right here in America, do we face it? 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. That's not me saying it. That's the word of God. According to this verse, we should be facing persecution. But I want to say something. It says this, yea, and all that will live godly. You notice that? It's those who are living godly lives. It's not the ones who are just making sure that everything is right, who are going to church. It's not just the, the ones who are the religious. You must be living godly. If you're not facing persecution, then maybe we should check our lives. Now, I'm not saying this morning, don't get me wrong, that, okay, so, well, I'm not facing persecution right now, so am I, uh, am I a Christian? Am I living godly life? No, because not everyone is going to be facing persecution all the time, okay? Matthew 5, 10 and 12, this is the end of the Beatitudes, says this, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We should be happy when we face persecution. The disciples were. What did they do when they were beaten there in Acts 4, I believe it, 3 or 4? When they came back to the others, they said, we're just, they just counted themselves. They were just excited and were, they were happy that they could count themselves of those that suffered for the name of Christ. I got this from, I believe it was um, an R. Kent Hughes. He said this, By far the greatest reason there is so little persecution is that the church has become like the world. If you want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve of the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on the moral or political issues. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing. How are we doing this morning? Think about Lot. What did Lot do? He was kind of getting sick and tired of all this 
Maybe he was getting sick and tired of all this mountain climbing, could we say, back there with Abraham. And then they couldn't get along with it. Their servants weren't getting along with each other. And Lot was sick and tired of it. The Bible says that he pitched his tent where? Toward Sodom. And then when judgment came and the angels came to Lot, where was he by that time? He was in Sodom. And when the angels said, go out and get your family and get them, bring them into this house so that we can save them, Lot couldn't say anything anymore. He goes out and he tries to say something and they laugh him to scorn and say, what are you? I mean, come on. You think we're going to come listen to this? How are you and I? In John 15, 18 to 19, this is what Jesus says. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It's a sobering thing when I look at these verses. If the world hates you, just realize that it hated me, Jesus is saying. If you were of the world, then the world would love you because the world loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But what about us? When we are... Or what about those Christians again who are mocking us, who are ridiculing the people of God? Now they are of the world, according to those verses. First Peter 3, 14 to 17 says, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to everyone, every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak of you as evil, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. <clears throat> I think this morning we need to ask ourselves some questions. You know, we as Anabaptists, we, could we say we pride ourselves? I, I should, maybe that's not the right terminology, but we think, you know, well, we take a stand on this. We take a stand on, we know where we stand on divorce. We know where we stand on the same sex um, issue or that arena we know where we might stand on a whole host of other issues but you know what happens with some of those things <clears throat> eventually they start kind of numbing us okay and 
as divorce, you know, it's been for years now, there's been divorce and remarriage. And eventually it starts kind of having a numbing effect on the church. And after a while, we, oh, we don't allow it, don't get me wrong, but we don't, it's easier to just not speak up about it anymore. Because it's kind of the norm in society. Listen, we need to know where we stand. We need to take a stand. And we must not be ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he say after all when he was here on earth? He said, if you are ashamed of me, he said, I will be ashamed of you. And maybe this morning, the fact that we don't face some persecution, and I'm not saying that we don't. I think we do. It's because maybe we're just not taking a stand anymore. Or maybe we are taking a stand, but we're just kind of silently taking that stand. We come to our little, cozy little churches, stay within our cozy little realm. We don't get involved too much. And I'm not here asking us to go out and make a statement on some street corner. That's not what I'm saying. But let's speak up when the opportunity is given. And let's know where we stand and be sure of where we stand. You know, the church at Smyrna was take, took a stand. They knew where they stood. There was no compromising. There was no giving in. They weren't becoming calloused to what was going on around them. After all, they had the schools of science, they had the schools of medicine. I don't know what all was going on there, but they weren't becoming calloused to it, and they were absolutely not compromising. The day Polycarp was um, executed, there was 12 others that were executed also. They weren't even afraid of what was Jesus is telling them, don't be afraid. I think they were taking what Luke 21 verses 14 to 19 says, say that Jesus says, said to the people there, he said to his disciples, he said, don't even think of what you're going to say. <clears throat> Jesus also says in Luke chapter 21, he says there that you're going to be, be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends. The church at Smyrna was not concerned that if their parents were against them, that if their brethren were against them, that if their kinsfolk were against them, or even their friends, that made no difference to them. They were standing on the truth. Are we, as Jesus said, are we taking a stand? Are we hating father and mother, brother and sister, friends, our own life for the sake of Jesus Christ? And then as we go on, we find this an encouragement and encouragement at the end of verse 10. It says, be thou faithful unto death. Just backing up a little note here on this. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. That is, I think, from what I could 
find in my studies that is not an actual 10 days. It's just that it's going to be short. Your tribulation will be short. It could have been a few years. It could have been any length of time, but it's not going to be long. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will what? Give thee a crown of life. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, Him that overcometh shall not be hurt of what? The second death. If you remain faithful, church, you will not be hurt of the second death. That death that will send people to hell, where the fire is burning forever, Pay attention, listen up to what is being said, and you will not be hurt of the second death. May the Lord bless you as you continue on in this walk, in this Christian life. Don't give up, friends, because there's a crown of life waiting you at the end. And you will not taste of the second death. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer?